Hi guys, Craig here. Welcome to another edition of the podcast, Tell Craig Your Story. Today we'll be listening to part two of my podcast with Joe Sib. Part two, we talk about the real reason why he left Wax and his determination to form a new band, 22 Jacks. He's touring with 22 Jacks, coming down to Australia. How he formed Side One Dummy Records. His comedy record, Nowhere Near the Top. Acting in the cult classic, More Rats and Biodome. And meeting Jim Brewer for the first time and going on tour with Metallica. But before we go, please go to our website. We're at Podbean. Tell Craig your story at podbean.com. We are on all the social medias, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, at Tell Craig Your Story. And make sure you're subscribing to get all the latest updates as soon as they are released. And we are also on WeChat for our Chinese listeners and VK for our Russian listeners. We also have a link tree there which tells you where Tell Craig Your Story podcast is streaming. We are on all the major podcast services, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Apple iTunes, to name a few. All right, here we go. This is part two of my chat with Joe Sib on Tell Craig Your Story podcast. Did you come down to Australia as well? Like uh, we have the Vans Whoop tour as well. Yeah. Yeah. So what ends up happening with Wax is, um, you know, I'm in Wax till about, you know, lasted till about like 94, 95. And And then then Wax. 22 Jack. Yeah. So then Wax. So Wax, uh, you know, melts and it ends. And we had a great run. Sorry. Sorry. uh, What happened there? Was it just like. Time to sort of break up, or you know, you um, have other directions or musical um, directions, or okay. It, so if I t- yeah, if I tell little... the truth, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I just feel if I tell the truth, I feel bad because I love those guys and like I'm friends with all of them. But to be totally 100% honest, and if I don't tell you, you know, it's it's the history. So they kicked me out of the band. Uh, we were in San Francisco. They they basically uh, we got done with the show and they said, hey, um, we're going on to the next show, but you're staying here. And I was oh. like, and it, yeah, it just ended. And, you know, here's the deal. Like, I'm not going to say that now. First of all, they made a mistake kicking me out of the band. That's that was wrong. But they they I deserve to maybe get kicked out of the band because I, you know, like I'm a very you know, I'm the guy that like, I'm going to get up in the morning and I'm going to do pushups in the, in, and I'm going to go for a run and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to say, let's write some songs. And then after we write the songs, I'm going to say, let's, let's also, you know, uh, talk about new t-shirt design. Like, like I could see when, like as much as like someone listening to this right now is like, Oh my gosh, you know, like I love Joseph's energy. I love, um, you know, I love, I love how much he's so positive. You know, I can, you also got to remember that that could get maybe a bit annoying and a bit overwhelming because I, I want to go, 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 go. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm not going like to stop battery. going. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to stop going, yeah. you know, Craig until I'm in the ground. And, and I think I pushed the guys in the band a lot and, you know, I'll be honest, you know, when, when someone, you know, I'm not afraid to call someone out on their, on their BS. And I think sometimes, you know, I got a tongue that could say, uh, you know, what the fuck are you doing, dude? Come on, tighten it up. And I would say that. And I think, I think after a while, you know, when you start experiencing success and I think the other band members, you know, at that time were like, you know, were like, wow, this you know, we don't need to work that hard. We can do, you know, and I just think, you know, I, I you know, we were young kids, you know, yes. and, you know, also I think we needed a break at that time. You know, I think if we would have, I think if we would have had a real manager, I think if we would have had a real manager, a manager would have stepped in and said, okay, no one's kicking Joe out. We're going to take a break for a second yes. here. And that's what we're going to do. And we didn't have that. So they kicked me out of the band. And of course I took it to heart. And I was like, oh, you want to kick me out of my band? Well, check this out. I'm going to start another band and I'm going to fucking crush everything that we did. And I went out and I went right to one of the best songwriters and one of the best iconic 
uh, punk rock legends around Steve Soto. He was one of my best friends. I went straight to him and said, I want to start a band. He said, don't have to ask twice. Let's do it. <laughs> and then him and I, we just started going and I just said, I'm going to, you know, I, Jason Cropper who got kicked out of wax or I'm sorry, got kicked out of Weezer. I'm going to write songs with him. You know, I'm going to write songs with uh, Chris Shiflett. Chris Shiflett, you know, of course is in the Foo Fighters at that time. He was in uh, no use for a name. So like all I did was I was like, I'm going to go around and write songs with all of these musicians that happen to be my friends. And, uh, and then we're going to deal with putting together a band later on. And we made, you know, the uncle Bob record. And, uh, it just, it, once again, we had a great lineup, put together a great lineup. We started touring, it connected and people know, you know, at the end of the day, 22 jacks ended up becoming a bigger band than wax and wax, you know, wax, although it, it's a great band and I'm super proud of it. 22 jacks did way more touring than wax ever did i mean 22 jacks toured with social distortion 22 jacks went out with the mighty mighty boss tones 22 jacks went to australia twice did the work i mean we toured all around the world multiple tours we really made a mark with that band but uh but it was it was you know at that point i was really driven by you know i was i I, it was like a guy and a girl breaking up like oh really check it out you want to break up with me well i'm gonna go find Find another band (laughs) yeah but the thing the thing i have to say and I know that your listeners might be, why is this so important for him to say? I cannot stress enough that the guys I started Wax with, I love them so much. They taught me how to write. I mean, those guys were so great at songwriting. And th- if it wasn't for the three of them l- giving me the chance to sing for their band, I wouldn't be sitting here with you right now doing this. So there's no... You know, there's no ill will with them. I always hate whenever I have to say they kick me out because, you know, they were they were my friends. I see them. I know they're kids. It's like, you know, we're 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 all good. It's just that was a part of the story that happened. happened. Yeah, absolutely. And let's talk about your, your experiences in Australia. Um, oh, I fucking coming out loved to Australia. It. Tell tell us tell us some of your stories about. Are we allowed uh, to swear? No? Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. Um, I loved Australia, you know, I mean, Australia, I went down there for the first time with the warp tour with 22 jacks. And then we came back with, uh, we came back and toured down there again with uh, real big fish. It was awesome. I mean, just great venues. We were on a great label down there. Um, I mean, all I have is just great memories of, of the tour, great memories of the people. We had real fans there. I mean, I used to, I used to, you know, almost joke around that Australia was like fantasy Island. It was just, it was amazing. Um, you know, and it's, and, and as a comedian, I've, I've often just been like, I really would love to go there and do stand up because I really, I have had a lot of people from Australia tell me, Oh my gosh, people would really like your energy and your vibe and get your jokes. So hopefully someday I can get down there. Well, that, that's the thing. Like uh, Henry Rollins has come down here quite a few times, oh, and, yeah. and he's he's uh, spoken words amazing every time he comes here. I'm always on there laughing. My God, I think you'd be you'd fit into it to a T. We've got a good sort of a comedy scene as well. You know, it just Great going yeah, going up the coast. Uh, we've got in Newcastle here. We've got the Civic Theatre, part of the uh, Sydney Comedy Festival. So yeah, definitely, we will love to come come out here. You're always welcome. I'd love to come. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you, you spoke before about your record label, Side One Dummy Records. No, yeah, um, Side One Dummy, Side One Dummy Records. Um, we celebrated 25 years this year. Um, that's amazing. We, yeah, we just we've released over 500 albums. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have. It was funny today. You know, we just signed a new act called uh, Sat Sing, super cool band. Yeah, right. Um, we have another act, Plasma Canvas, out of Denver. Um, Andy Frasco, you know, it's a, it's definitely um, difficult with COVID going on because yes. none of these people can tour. Um, the label's been home to Flogging Molly, Molly Gaslight Anthem, Anthem yes. yeah, Gogo Bordello. Um, yes. We've done every single Warp Tour compilation. We have, you know, we've really, once again, when I think about side one dummy i'll be honest craig it's like it's another like you know everything we just talked about for the last half hour it's like okay but like side one dummy is one of my proudest moments because you know it's one thing when you're the singer and you're in the band and you're creating it 
But it's another thing when you get to be a part of watching and seeing someone else obtain their goals. And to be totally honest with you, the, the achievement that, you know, the achievements that flogging Molly or gaslight Anthem have achieved are way, way bigger than my personal music, you know, achievements. Like, you know, my bands were cool, but flogging Molly is an internationally known band. Um, gaslight Anthem is an Inner, I mean, Gogo Berdello, so many of these bands, um, you know, just even the newer acts, you know, Andy Frasco, uh, you know, just all these bands. I mean, they're internationally known and and world, they're just around the world, you know. And for me, you know, I might not have ever achieved that, that success as a as a singer in my band, but I think I'm almost more proud of the fact that I've been able to be a part of you know, multiple bands achieving that success. And sometimes I feel like that was the reason I was put on this earth because I'm good at like driving people and pushing them and helping them to obtain their goals. And I just also, with the help of my partner, Bill Armstrong, we just, we've been very fortunate to have a great set of ears to sign bands that we feel are important. And I, and I'm, and I'm super grateful for that because you know when i think of like you know signing flogging molly i mean that's the to some people that'd be the equivalent of signing the clash you know (laughs) or or, i mean i mean honestly you know because our common ground is metallica you and i i would say to some people when i tell them i signed you know i worked with you know i've worked with brian fallon and gaslight anthem they're like they think that's the like in their eyes in their hearts that's metallica because they have the gaslight anthem tattoo they you know flogging molly and they're like this band you know i mean i have i wish you know if i had a dollar for every time someone told me how much gaslight anthem changed their life how much flogging molly changed their life how much title fight changed their life how much you know the casualties i mean just i mean these bands had such an impact on these people's lives you know sometimes i feel bad because i meet these kids and they're like you know man i you know when i heard flogging molly i decided and you know i didn't i quit college i'm like whoa 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 what you know like i'm like your parents must hate us you know like but like no it's like they're like no i went on to pursue what i wanted to do and and for me personally that is is such that's one of the proudest things that I've ever been a part of and that I'm super, super proud of that, that I've been able to help these bands achieve this huge success. Well, the thing is, Joe, that you've, you've lived it yourself, you know, you've gone through all the experiences with the record labels yourself and to you actually to be in bands before you can see it from their side, you know, you know, when you sign them and all the things that happen to you, you can say, well, okay, this is, you know, you can sort of steer them in the right direction, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's why I think, you know, you, cause you know, at a certain point in your life, you know, you always kind of think about like, Oh, you know, how did that work out? Or why did this happen? And I, and I, I remember, I think I figured that out though, like relatively young because there was times where I was like, you know, why, why am I not Eddie better? You know, why, <laughs> why, you know, I, I mean, I mean that I was like, yeah. I, wh- what's so great about Pearl Jam? You know, what's so great about Soundgarden? And I remember seeing Pearl Jam and Soundgarden for the first time ever at Lollapalooza. I think it was the second Lollapalooza and Wax was on that stage. We were on the stage and we were on a side stage and I was like, why are we on the side stage? We should be on the main stage. And I was pissed. And I remember I marched over there and I'm like, I'm going to see this Pearl Jam band. I'm going to see Soundgarden. You know, man, what, why, why are we not on here? And I remember Soundgarden went on first and Chris Cornell came out and the band came out. And I remember being on the side of the stage and it took all of about, I don't know, four minutes for me to realize I do not have what he has. Right. Yeah. Now, I didn't verbally say that, but in my mind, I was like, whoa, okay. Nice. And then they got done and I was in shell shock and then Pearl Jam came out and I was like, okay, all right. 
like Where'd I'm not going to vocalize this, but I'm telling you right now, I, I'm never going to be, I don't have what those guys have. Like I don't have it. But the weird thing was, was I could see it and I could, I could see. And like, w- what I'm trying to say is this, like when I look at, when I think about Dave King from flogging Molly, or when I think about, you know, Brian Fallon from gaslight anthem or, you know, um, even, even, you know, Dickie Barrett and the mighty, mighty Boston's like, I, I can say, there's a, there's a moment in your mind where you have to say, Hey, it's not me, but you know what? I can help them and I can, I can get them to get them to achieve the goals and dreams that they want. And, you know, with like Benny and Alex's from Gaslight Anthem, like when I saw that band and when Bill and I saw it, we were like, I was like, okay, you know, this is, this is greatness right here. And then, you know, same thing with the other bands on the label, like, you know, all the bands on the label, anytime we signed a band on the label, you know, I've never signed a band on Side One Dummy not saying to myself, I want this to be huge. Like, yes. it's never been like, you know, and I remember even one time meeting a band and I I, I, I kind of scared them off because I was like, you know, what's your plan? What do you want to do? And they were like, well, we would be, you know, there was a small club and their their goal was they just want to headline like their local club. And I said, no, I go, what about you? You know, the plan is we get you to the, you know, you want to headline the forum in LA. Yeah. And they were like, they said to me, yeah, we're not that we don't, that's not what we're, we don't want to like, we don't want that type of success. And I was really? like, okay, then I'm the wrong guy. Yes. Yeah, Cause yeah. I'm like, you know, I, I want to get still, you to the next. Yeah. I'm, you know, I, you know, call me old school, call me a boomer, but it's like, I grew up with the clash and they did a month at bonds theater because every show sold out. I want to work with bands that want to change people's lives. I want to work with bands that, that, that have no backup plan. They're like, look, if this doesn't happen, then, then we're not eating tonight. And that's, that's the type. And I love that kind of art. I love, I love sink or swim attitude. Absolutely. And all those bands that are like got that attitude, you know. <laughs> so I want to throw a little bit of a curveball, go off topic a little bit. I noticed in like actor and producer, and in 95, you were a part of Mall Rats. Yeah. How did that all come about when you hear you are trying to be a, you know, a punk rock, uh, you know, you playing know- the band? I know, I know. So the way that all came about was Wax was, we were in LA and we had a manager and they were doing the movie Mall Rats. And, um, you know, next thing we knew, they were like, we need a song for it. And it was like, okay. So we wrote a song for that. And I think before that, where the actor comes in was there was a movie with one of the Baldwin brothers. I want to say Stevie and, Pauly Shore and they had this movie called Biodome and basically they needed a band to play at this party during the Biodome like as it falls apart and basically we someone in there liked the band and they saw us and our look and they were like hey man would you guys want to be in this movie and you know we're young kids and we're like hell yeah so they flew us (laughs) they flew us out you know we we were on the road they flew us to LA. They put us up at the Hyatt and we were stoked. And, you know, we were on the universal lot and, and we worked and, um, that was how I met Polly shore. Wow. And, and it was crazy because, you know, at that point, you know, I had never thought about doing comedy or anything. Yeah. And I remember I met Polly shore on the set of his movie. And for some reason, you know, he was just cool. And, and then, you know, like it was just, we did our thing. He was cool to us. You know, we left it was done. The movie came out. We were stoked. But then like for years, I never saw Polly. And then when I started doing spoken word and, and, and doing that show, California calling, yes. I got a phone call from someone that knew Polly and they said, Hey man, I work with Polly and he'd love to meet with you at the comedy store. And I was like, Oh yeah. And over the years, you know, I'd run into Polly and he was always cool, you know, but when I came up to the comedy store, he was like, man, you should really be doing your show, California Calling, here. And I was like, really? And he goes, yeah, you should. And I was like, I mean, like, how do we make that happen? And he goes, you know, this is why my mom built this room for shows like this. And I was like, okay. And he let me do the show. And at that point, I was doing spoken word. It was stories and talking. And it was funny. You know, like, people were into it. Yeah. I sold out the first time I ever did it. And then afterwards, about a 
I don't know, six months later to a year, I, I really wanted to start doing stand up. And everyone told me, you know, not to, that it's a nightmare and that you don't want to do it. And, and I was like, no, 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 I want to do it. And I reached out to Polly and said, Hey, you know, could you help me? And he said, yeah, sure. You know, and he introduced me to someone and I started going to the comedy store. I never, the, the comedy store at that point and still is, I mean, there's a, there's a definite, uh, protocol to the way they work the comics there. And I couldn't be a guy because at that point my kids were super young and I couldn't be the guy like, you got to come to the comedy store. You got to come to the comedy store and you got to hang out and you got to, you know, work the front door. And I was like, I'm a grown man. I can't do that. So I did, a, you know, I always, I've, I've done shows there obviously, but I never was like a paid regular, which is a coveted spot in the world of comedy to be a paid regular um, at the comedy store. But for me, my home club started to become the improv in Hollywood. And then the laugh factory, they, the laugh factory, you know, they started putting me up a lot and that really kind of allowed me to spend, you know, the next five years just kind of honing in and trying to figure out what kind of comic I was going to be and, and, and doing that. But you know, the, the acting and, you know, mall rats thing. I mean, th those, I mean, still to this day, like mall rats and biodome, like every Cult so often. Yeah. They're just, it's, it was, you know, I'm super, like I said, super, I can't believe we did it. And it was just <laughs> rad. You know, I mean, like when I see the footage of biodome every once in a while, like, you know, every once in a while, like it'll be on TV or something. And like my daughter will send me a picture like, there you are. You know, like, yep. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it, you know, it was cool. Now, now, Joe, uh, I wanted to ask, you were talking about uh, transitioning from spoken word to yep. stand-up. Was that a hard transition or was it something that you found pretty easy to do? I don't want to say like it was hard because it was just a lot of, it was a lot of work and it was a lot of, you know, it was stand-up comedy and spoken, like spoken word for me, that came, that came, you know, naturally and doing stand-up came naturally. Like I was always a comic that, you know, I've always gotten laughs yes. and you know, it like, you know, whether or not they were great laughs or whether, you know, what kind of laugh are you getting? Like, I'm sure we could talk about that, but like, I was always comfortable on stage. So like, you know, it was doing storytelling and doing comedy for me. That part wasn't hard, like getting on stage, but what, and I, and I don't want to say it was hard, but what was important to me was I wanted to be a good standup. Yes. I wanted to be great. I didn't want to just get laughs to get them. And, and when you first start doing comedy and you learn how to get laughs, then before you know it, you start getting laughs and then you go home at night and you're like, what kind of laugh did I get? Did I get a laugh that, you know, that people are just going to leave the venue and not ever talk about it? Or am I going to get a laugh that tomorrow when they're at work and they're talking to their friend during break, they're going to try to imitate my joke. They're going to try to say the words I said, and then that person's going to laugh and I'm not even there. That's the type of laugh I want to get. That's the type of, I want someone, I want to be that good. And that to me was where I, in my opinion, really focused for the last 11 years. And just, I dedicated my time to that, you know, to the point of like, if I wasn't working at side one, or if I wasn't, you know, home with my family, I was in a nightclub doing standup and, yeah. and doing a lot of it, you know, like, yeah. be, you know, and you have to, even before COVID happened, you know, I'd gotten to a place where I was, you know, the only two days that I wasn't doing standup unless I was on the road is Sunday and Monday. And when I, when I was at home, I would do stand-up comedy Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then I'd leave to go on the road for the weekend, come home and then Tuesday, you know, you just... You have to be doing it all the time. You, it's yes. not something you get good at not doing. And it, and and unfortunately, like if you you know if you truly want to be a great comedian, it's something else in your life will um will fall to the wayside because you have to work so hard at being a standup. Now you know that could be your marriage, that could be your relationship with your kids. But I'm guarantee you, if you sat down with like Bill Burr, or if you sat down with Lewis Black and said, Hey, have you ever been focused on comedy so much to get to where you are that do you think if you look back on your life, things would be, would have, you know, could have been differently if you hadn't have been a comic? And I guarantee you they'll say, Hell yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't, 
you know, I, I think it's the same that goes for great musicians, too. You yeah, know? it does. It sort of works so, hand in hand. Yeah. So it says here that you brought out a, a comedy record, Nowhere Near the Top yep. as well. Um, yeah. What was that, that was experience first, like? It was great. I recorded it. What I, what I love about that record is it's basically one take from start to finish. There's not any editing. There's a little bit of editing of like, a swear word taken out maybe. Um, I love that. Uh, yeah, it's start to finish and it did really well. And it, and for me, it really opened a lot of doors, uh, for more work for me. And I love that record because it really has a beginning, a middle and an end. And it's a real snapshot of where I was in my life, in my marriage with my kids, with my daughter, with my son, where I was at that, like, I'm never not going to listen to that record and not remember exactly where I was at that point with everyone in my life and my family. So was that all of your material that you'd done or was it the song, no, song, like No, basically what we decided was since I was a new comic, they're like, let's do like, you know, you're basically going to do like a 22 minute EP. And I was like, okay. You know, I was just excited. Someone had asked me to do yeah. the record you know like i was because one of the things that everyone used to say to me is why don't you just put your record out on side one why isn't it on side one and i was like because i own side one and if i if i put out my own record you know what good is that yes. so i basically wanted someone i said i'm gonna wait till someone approaches me and and the people at 800 pound gorilla said hey man we like what you're doing would you want to do a record and i was like hell yeah so yeah. i waited so you you brought out that album so was that album before you met jim brewer or yes. was it yes after? yeah okay so tell us how how you met jim brewer and how that or you, dude you I, were... met, I'm, I met him like this because um he my friend chris shiflett who's in the foo fighters he has a podcast called walking the room and right. he was interviewing jim brewer for that podcast and what ended up happening was um, he needed a place to record it. So he came to LA and he recorded it side one dummy. And uh -huh. Chris said, Hey man, I'm interviewing Jim Brewer today. I go, Oh my God, I love Jim Brewer. Yeah. So it was at my office. So when Jim showed up, I met him, we started talking. He was like, Hey man, I was like, I'm a comic and I, you know, I'd love to work with you someday. And I could tell he was like, yeah, cool. You know, he's like, stay in touch with my publicist. So I stayed <laughs> in touch with the publicist and I did for about a year. And then finally I'd ask, Hey, could I open? They always, they didn't need an opener. And then one day they said, Hey, check it out. We need an opener. Can you go to San Diego? I said, hell yeah. I went down to San Diego <laughs> and I remember my dad lives in San Diego. So I, I said, dad, you got to come with me tonight. We're going to see Jim Brewer. I'm opening. He said, great. I brought my dad to the show. We went backstage and I told my dad, wait in my dressing room. I go, just wait in here. I have to go get some people in. And when I came back, I hear Jim Brewer and my dad laughing and talking. And my dad was now in Jim Brewer's dressing room and they hit it off. <laughs> yeah. They were like laughing and they were talking about the Mets and like <laughs> just, you know, going nuts. And I, I, so then my dad goes, Joe, this is Jim. And I go, yeah. You know, and Jim <laughs> goes, I love your dad. And then basically Jim always says, you know what, after, you know, I met you and you brought your dad to the show, I knew, you know what, even if this guy isn't funny, he's a good guy, he brings his, what kind of guy brings his dad to the show? <laughs> and then basically, um, Jim started asking me to open for him and then, you know, just went on the road with him for the, it was like two years. That's so cool. It was and super cool. Yeah. What was it like working with Jim? I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of Jim Brewer, like tuning on Saturday Night Live. He's come out to Australia a couple of times. Super cool guy. I've only met him once, but uh, he was really nice to me. We talked Metallica and, and ACDC. And, of course. Yeah. So uh, what was it like uh, on the road with Jim? Is he, you know, just the he, same? You know what it is? The thing, I, the thing I think that worked with Jim is like for me opening for him, I think, you know, we're the same dude in, in the sense that like yes. – he loves metal. I love punk rock. You know, we're the same age, basically. You know, we, we were both married to the same woman, you know, not, you know, <laughs> not, not the same one, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Yes. Like, you know, we both are married dudes. Um, we both have kids. So like, I think us touring together, it was, you know, we just, yeah, we had fun, you know, yeah. like we just laugh a lot. Um, what I love about Jim is he's, he's, he's just the real deal. Um, and what I love about him too, is he's a, he's a super, spiritual um deep there's a deep side to jim you know he's not he's not a silly guy you know like there's way more 
going on with him than I think a lot of people know. And, and, you know, he's been there as a great friend for me through a lot, you know, just over the years. Um, and you know, we just became buddies. It's, it's weird. It's like, you know, like he's someone that like, you know, it, it just, it feels like we grew up together and, um, he's just been a good guy. He's just been such a solid guy. The other thing I love about him too, is he's another guy. And this is sometimes rare. He loves to talk about stand up. Like if, you know, we would spend hours talking about stand up. We would spend hours talking about word placement. We would spend hours laughing. Just, we would go on these tangents and we would laugh so hard. And one of the best feelings for me is I can honestly say like, I, I feel I, like one of the, another moment I have that's super proud is, you know, I have made Jim Brewer laugh really hard. Like we've been in the car <laughs> together and I've made him laugh and, and, you know, and I've made him cry from laughing. And to me, when I've made him laugh, like that, that's, that's just the, um, that's the best feeling in the world, making someone like him laugh. And yes. that's something I'm super proud of. He's got that uh, infectious laugh. <laughs> oh, dude, he's just, yeah. <laughs> He's just hilarious. So how did it all come about, the whole Metallica tour? Here I am, you know, actually looking maybe to go on the, you know, the U.S. Metallica tour, and I'm always interested to see who the support act is, and I'm looking at it and going, hmm, no support act. What is going on here? So tell us, Joe, how how this all come well, about. Here, you know what? You know what I'm going to try to do? Can I share my screen? Sure. Okay, because I want to try to do something here. Let's see if I can do this. Because I, this is, okay, you ready for this, Craig? Yeah. This is going to be something I literally just got for the first time. And if I can make this work, you're going to, I mean, I have this little clip that, okay, so listen to this story. You ready? Here we go. Okay. Tell me if this works. This is how the whole thing happened. Even the way I got the gig, it was crazy. I've been so fortunate that I've been able to open for the last two years for an amazing comedian by the name of Jim Brewer. Amazing guy. <laughs> And, and more than a comedian, been a great friend. And I was opening for him, and he's friends with the guys in Metallica. That's his crew. And we would be on the road, and he would literally get phone calls from Lars or get a phone call from James. And I would just sit there and be like, no way. He's can't feel from Metallica. And as time went on, all of a sudden, one time he goes, hey, dude, check it out. They're not going to bring a band on the next U.S. tour. They want to bring me. And I'm like, really? And all that was going through my head was like, Bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Sounds fun. And then he says this, do you want to go? And I'm like, fuck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then he says, hey, man, you know how to DJ? And I'm like, dude, I'm DJing all the time. Never DJed in my life. Never. I just made that. That's so cool. You did all cool? the cartoon as well. So anyway, that's how it, that's how it all came about. You know, like yeah. basically we were on the road and Jim would get these these texts, you know, because he's you know he's friends with the guys in Metallica. So like at one point he you know it'd been going on for months, yeah. and then one day he goes, dude, like they're not going to bring a band. They asked me if I want to go, and I remember going like, are you serious? And he's like, yeah. And sure enough. You know, I was like, I don't know, man, that sounds sketch, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but then he was like, Lars says I can bring someone. Do you want to go? And I remember I was like, yeah, you know, I didn't even know what I was getting myself into. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it was, I mean, sometimes, you know, I, I look back on that. I mean, Jim could have brought anybody, you know, I mean, and I'm sure they already, you know, and I remember we had heard they'd already got someone in a, Lars wasn't really like, he was like, oh, I kind of want to do something different. And, you know, before I knew it, I remember I had to wait for about three weeks to find out that I got the gig. And, uh, and then all of a sudden Jim and I we were just like, I was like, I can't believe this. And, you know, we just, I mean, it was incredible, man. I mean, it was just, you know, like, you know, I had a lot of anxiety leading up to it because oh. I didn't know what we were getting ourselves into, you know, the, the, it was, yeah, it was just so many is it going to be Cause cool? Because you, you had like a, a, a like a, a sort of a plan, but dude, we had no like, plan. Oh dude, really? I'll tell you, no, no, I'll tell you. See, you know, it's funny because that cartoon I just showed you tells that whole story. Because what happened was this: Jim, like you know, Jim likes to say we had a plan, but I don't remember having any plan. And I love Jim to death. What I remember happening was was 
anytime Jim and I got together leading up to going on the road with Metallica, we, Jim would be like, okay, Joe, we got to have a plan. And he would start talking, but then we would just start getting so giddy and so crazy. Like we're going on tour with Metallica. What the, <laughs> you know, like this is crazy. And then we would just start, we would talk more about like, dude, I wonder if they'll play whiplash. You know, like it was just like, you know, and then I would ask, and then, you know, also you got to remember like he's friends with him. So I would ask him, I would like a lot of times, you know, we probably should have been planning something, but I'm asking him like, so dude, what's James's house? Like, you know, like, I don't know, you know, what, where does Lars live? You know, like is Kirk cool? You know, is when we showed up to Madison that first night and that's what that cartoon's about, you know, Jim had a plan, but the plan was like, we're, you know, we had a couple ideas of what we might try. I, you know, it was just, but like, you can't plan how you're going to entertain 23,000 people before Metallica. You can't plan that. And thankfully, you know, the first night we got through it, but the, and and it wasn't, it was, it was, you know, it wasn't good. It was, it was, it wasn't a tragedy, but we, like, I always like to say like, you know, the plane came in and there was definitely foam on the runway, fire engines everywhere. They were expecting a crash landing. Now, did we crash? No, but that plane needed a serious repair. Like we, it was like, there was a lot of shit that we needed to fix. And the thing that I'll say is this, this is the, another just super proud moment was, you know, we did Madison and that show, you know, we, we knew, okay, we got to fix it. And then, then we had one day off. And then we had the next show, which was in Minneapolis. So we only had 24 to 48 hours to, to go from, okay, this does not work to, we got to at least have a show that we, that people aren't going to kill us at. Like, thank God they weren't selling alcohol in Madison. They were selling ice cream for some reason. It was weird, but, but the show in Minneapolis was booze, you know? So I, I was like, and the thing I'll always remember is I went to Jim's room in Minneapolis the next day and he's laughing, you know, that laugh you're saying, and I'm, and he's like, Oh my God, you look like you haven't slept. And I'm like, I haven't, I, I'm so, you know, dude, we got to fix this. And we put together, we sat down and I remember we put together a brand new show and we did, we literally put together the show in 24 hours and we ended up doing that show, at least the configuration of it, you know, the way that it would start the bits that, you know, we were going to do, we learned right away. Like Jim and I, I would, you know, we didn't realize at least, you know, we didn't, we didn't realize that everyone, like, I don't think Jim knew that everyone knew that they were coming to like I, this, I'm trying to say, let me say this. I don't think Jim took into consideration just how popular he was with the Metallica fans and how much they knew his relationship with the band and how they knew and expected him to do stand up. I don't think neither one of us knew that. I think we thought, Oh, well, you know, they're not going to want to hear jokes. And I'm telling you the first night in Madison, there was about a 10 minute period that it, it all clicked because Jim did stand up. He started talking about ACDC. He started talking about Judas priest. He started talking about Lemmy. He started talking about James. He started imitating Lars. And I remember, I thank God it, the, the higher power, like reminded me like, dude, you got to do more of that. Yeah. You guys got to do, you got to let Jim do stand up. And I, by dude, I'll tell you this right now. There were some nights Jim would do 40 minutes, 50 minutes in front of 23,000 Metallica fans. And he had them, you know, he, he does a bit where he says, you know, opening for Metallica is like a lion tamer. You just got to, you know, Oh, that guy wants to give me the finger. And I'm telling you right now, considering, you know, we did 35 shows and you know, like, I don't, I don't remember. I, yeah, sure. You know, I, there was, you know, one in Philadelphia, of course, someone threw a beer. That was only one beer. Um, you know, I never heard, Hey, fuck you. Like it was, you know, I mean, to be honest, man, you know, the show that we put together, I think was honestly like, and I have so much footage from it. It was just so interactive. We had like and when I see interactive, I don't mean like with computer screens. I mean, we did fun stuff. Like we would do a sing along with the whole audience where we would do, we'd go from Sabbath into ACDC into Johnny Cash into Slay. It was fucking sick. <laughs> yeah. People loved it. And then we would, um, you know, there was, 
there was stuff he was doing backstage with the band. Uh, there was stuff he was doing. It was just great. And, but, but we, you know, that first night, that first night was rough. Yeah. Well, I saw, I, I didn't see that tour uh, with you guys, but I did see Jim at the 30th anniversary shows of Metallica. Yep. That's where they got, yeah, I was lucky enough to go to all four of those. They got Jason Newster, they got Ozzy yep. Osbourne, and Jim was the host. So yeah. I got to see what, what you know, a little bit of, and he was hilarious, so funny, yeah. telling all these stories, being Brian Johnson, and, and, and so it's just great. And you could just tell that he wasn't just a, a ring-in, he was a dead set, he was a fan, he was oh, a he was, you know, true every, passionate yeah. Absolutely. I mean, he is a fan. Like, yes. I'll say this, that, you know, one of the things that, you know, I remember, you know, Jim, that was another thing too. Like we put together the show, but like Jim never, he never like told me what to say or like to do, you know, he, you know, he would obviously give me like, Hey man, you know, maybe we do this bit here. Like every day we, we move things around and we do things. But one of the only things that he made sure I said every single night was he says, Hey, when you introduce me, cause the way the show started out was, I always came out at the very beginning, you know, Cincinnati, Detroit, wherever we were. And I'd be like, what's up? You know, uh, are you guys ready to get this show started? You know, Metallica's in, you know, Metallica's in the building. Let them know you're here tonight. Crowd would go crazy. And I'd be like, look, I'm your, I'm your, um, I'm your co-host and I'm your DJ tonight. And like, whatever you want to hear, let me know. And then they, you know, I was like, and they'd show my Instagram and then I'd say, um, you know, uh, we got Jim Brewer here tonight crowd would go crazy and i'd be like all right look you know i'm gonna anything you want to hear tonight i'll play for you but like you know where are my priest fans crowd would go crazy where are my iron maiden fans all right cool you know where are my anthrax fans all right they go nuts and then i'd i'd always go all right we're gonna start it off right though um scream real loud so lemmy can hear you and we'd go into motorhead that was the first song i played every night and then i you know i changed the song each time so it wasn't always the same motorhead song but what i ended up doing was you know it was that thing that i realized from being a kid if i play iron maiden there'll be people that don't like maiden but if i play motorhead yes. that just sets the tone for the night and this turned into a party and the other thing was the people in metallica the crew the manager the band they never ever gave us one bit of direction or critique I mean, they'd give us like, oh, dude, I love when you, you know, they would, all they would really do is like, I remember the manager, you know, came over to me one night and he's like, he's sitting there and he's like, did you just play prong? And I go, yeah. And he's like, fuck yeah. And then all of a sudden the Sex Pistols started playing. He's like, wait a minute, you're playing prong into the Sex Pistols? And I go, yeah. And he just looks at me and he's the manager, this guy named Mark Ryder. He's like, fuck yeah. And, just, and I go. Like when he came towards me, I was like, oh shit, he has a look in his eye and he's, yeah. he's coming at me to go, you just played prong. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, fuck yeah. I remember like, you know, Lars being stoked because I would play like, um, God, what did he want to hear? And I would play it. Like it just, you know, like it was cool. And, um, but I do remember there was one thing that Jim said to me, he goes, Joe, the only thing I want you to say every night when you bring me up on stage, you know, cause I would play music for half power and i'd be like all right we're gonna get this show started right i play the beginning of acdc for those about to rock and as the music built up i say you know all right you know san antonio make some noise you know come into the stage right now my friend and metal and i'd always say my friend and die hard metallica fan your host and mc jim brewer and he really he said let these people know and his most important thing was die hard metallica fan and dude he would do his show. We did our show every night. Like it was like a two hour show. And then when Metallica came out on stage every night, dude, Brewer was in the fucking crowd headbanging. And he would say to me, he would say, dude, you know, is that lame that I headbang with the fans? And I go, no. And he goes, and I go that because I can tell that's what you and dude, He would headbang for the whole show. That's real. Isn't it? You know? And I, and like, and not like, not like, you know, phone it in. Like yeah. he's, you know, like, I mean, he would just go for it. And then I remember the fans always would try to get him to go on the rail, no, you yeah. know, and he wouldn't do that because he's like, you know, cause he's friends with Jane. You know, he's like, no, no, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. You know, like, all right, cool. But like, <laughs> dude, there's videos of him and he's just head banging so yeah. hard into it, into it. Not like, 
you know, like, oh yeah, it's cool. Like, I'm just going to be into it when they play, you know, master. Like, dude, he's into it every, every song. And I, I remember yeah. I was like, dude, you know, that's rad. Like, yeah, he was a, he's a fan, man. He's a fan. Dedication. I remember in those, uh, sorry, getting back to those anniversary shows, I was um, in the mosh pit and just doing my thing as well. And this guy kept pushing me in the back and elbowing me and hit me in the head. And it's like, if he does it one more time, I'm going to turn around and belt this guy. <laughs> I turn around and it's Chris Jericho, the wrestler, Y2J. Oh, shit. Yeah. And, and, and it's like, oh, so, like he's, oh sorry, sorry. Oh, I'm just, you know, it's my day off and I'm just, you know, letting loose. And it's like, mate, huge fan, you know, yeah. keep going. And he said, oh, um, I can't talk, mate. I'm going to go into the front of the mosh pit. And it's like, you, you do your thing, mate, go. And it's like, that is just... You know, you know what I mean. So it's just yeah. lit and loose. Okay, no, no family, no kids. Yeah, <laughs> just, you know. You know, I, I think I heard. I think I heard a story a while ago. Like there was a show in L.A. where Soundgarden played. Like maybe the Forum, and like Dave Grohl was in the pit during Soundgarden, and like, but like lost his wallet and keys. Like just went nuts. And like just and everyone was like helping him try to find his shit or some story like that. But like wow. you know, I was like, wow, that's so rad. Like, you know, just people they're fans, you know, they yeah, go for it. Absolutely. Two things that I want I, I wanna uh, talk about before we finish, uh Joe. Cool. cool. Uh one one thing uh, I noticed in your sort of long list of accomplishments, uh supporting Danzig. What was that experience like? Um, so that was my first band. I'm in a, that was my first band frontline. I think we had changed our name to lifeline at this point. Um, the record, uh, the record mother had just come out, you know, and, um, we ended up getting to open up for Danzig in, uh, Los Angeles at a place called the country club. And, uh, you know, we came down and, 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 you know, we had played with him one time in San Francisco and then our manager got us another show opening and forming the country club. And I remember they were just on fire. It was the original Danzig lineup, wow. Chuck biscuits on drums. It was sick. Wow. But I always remember like the thing, the story I always tell is, so we got done playing our show and we're all sweaty and we're all in our dressing room. And like, we're like, Oh my God, we just opened for Danzig. And you know, like Danzig's going on next. And like, they're playing all the, you know, they're changing the set and all of a sudden it's like, you know, the intro music's playing and like, you know, the band starts walking by and you're like, oh, there goes Biscuits. Okay, cool. Next guy. Boom, boom, boom. And then all of a sudden, you know, Danzig walks by and he looks in our dressing room and we all just go quiet. We're like, okay. And one <laughs> of our guys, my uh, the bass player in our band, Kevin, Kevin Morrissey, he goes, you know, Danzig kind of walks away and he's down the hallway now and it's still quiet, but Danzig can still hear us. And my friend yells, Give him hell, Glenn. And we all start laughing like, oh, my God, that's so funny. You know, we're little kids. We think it's hilarious. And while we're laughing, all of a sudden, in like this quick gesture so fast, just into the doorway is Glenn again. And he looks at all of us. And the room goes silent. And he goes, I will. And we just went nuts. Wow. Like, yeah. <laughs> and he just walked away. And we were so stoked. That's so cool. And – I go onto your uh, social media and I see a ton of Ramones pictures. Yeah. How did that all come about? Like, oh man. Punk. The Ramones are, you know what, man? Like when it punk, comes punk to royalty. like, yeah, I was just going to say when it comes to music for me, you know, like, you know, we've talked about Jim Brewer and Metallica for me, yeah. it would be the Ramones. Yeah. You know, that was my band that changed my life. That was the band that, got me to where I'm at in, you know, right now. Like if I hadn't discovered the Ramones when I was a little kid, I wouldn't have discovered any of the music that changed my entire life. They were the gateway. They're the, they're the merit, they're the weed. They're the marijuana of punk rock, man. Like they, if, if, you know, if, if smoking weed is a gateway drug, then the Ramones are definitely my gateway to the entire history of my musical career because I love the Ramones. I don't know what it is. Like sometimes I still think about it because now like the band is, the band is, you know, it's such a long time ago, you know, they, you know, they all are dead. So like, I don't know, sometimes I don't even like to talk about it because it's like trying to tell someone like why you love like Beethoven and people are like, dude, like <laughs> that's over. You know, yes. I don't know what it was, but for, for, a, I have my theories of why I think the Ramones connected with me so hard. Um, 
I think the I think the number one reason is is because I think sonically, the way their songs are written, because of the um, short and just there's no fat on the bone at all. Yes. There's no there's no fat. It's like it's it's just it's just gonna be an intro into a verse into a chorus into another uh, verse into maybe a chorus and then we're gonna do an outro and we're done. And I think for some strange reason, my brain needs and loves the simplicity of that. Like I'm a very simple dude. Like I eat the same thing. Um, you know, um, I, I, you know, if I like something, I love it. If I don't like, and I think the Ramones music at a time in my life gave me something to count on that wasn't going to change. And, and, and I could get my head around it. Like, I think it was really, it was simple and I don't know if that's saying, you know, I'm a simple person or, you know, it, I don't know. I just, the way it's set up sonically, I think did something to my brain because it just, it felt very comforting. And, and, and to this day, I don't know. It's just, it was music that just meant so much to me. And then once again, I was a kid that hung out at the club. They came through. I met this guy named Arturo Vega. He was the, he was the, the lighting coordinator for the band. Yes. We became, you know, friends and anytime they came through, you know, I was there and then I became friends, you know, with him and the band and then Joey and then Johnny and and just all of a sudden I, you know, kind of got into an opportunity where I started to, you know, see them and then my band opened for them. And then as I got older and I started 22 Jacks, Joey was a huge fan of the Jacks and we became really good friends. And, you know, it's just things like that, that, um, yeah, it's just, that seems like a dream. And they really, they just really were just such a band that was so important to me, but it's like, you know, that's why I can't make fun of people like when I see kids and they go, Oh my God, you know, whether it's a pop artist they love and they, they mm. cry and then older people make fun of that, that kid. Like I, I can never do that because that's how I was with the Ramones. I can't, you know, when, you know, there's plenty of bands I don't like and people love them and they yes. go, and I hear other people say, what? Oh my God, how can that kid love that music? And, and I go, well, you know what? You've never loved a band so much. And, and you've never loved music so much that it hurts. Like, yes. like the Ramones, like, like still, like I can hear songs and, and it just takes me back to whether it was seeing them live or, or, you know, hearing the song for the first time or where I was in my life at that time. It's definitely the soundtrack to my life. And, um, but I do think when it's all said and done, I'd love someone to like, when I'm gone to like open my brain up and see if there's something going on with like the sonic and the vibrations of their music. Cause it does, it definitely, <laughs> it's so simple, but it's so perfect. Yeah. I love it. So let's get close to wrapping it up here, Joe. So the, what does the future hold for Joe after the pandemic? Gosh. Cause we haven't talked much about your family and I was kind of, sort of pushing to be a good father or something like that, you know? <laughs> no, I mean, no, I mean, I think for me, um, gosh, you know, after the pandemic, gosh, um, I mean, like we were talking earlier, I'll just never take for granted any of the things that I did, you know? Um, I would love to, you know, I can't wait to travel again. Yeah. I can't wait to, you know, perform again. I do think though, that it's going to be different. Like a lot of things I thought were super important are just trivial now to me, you know, like I'm going to, you know, one of the things for me right now, like, like when you bring up your, my family, cause I know someone might be like, Oh, well, you know, isn't he saying anything about his family? <laughs> no, I mean, I have teenagers, so I got a 19 year old and a 16 year old. Now the pandemic's going to be over and you know what? They're, they could care less. You know what I'm saying? They're 19. <laughs> they're like, dad, you know, what's going on with the pandemic? I don't know. Does it affect my phone? No, it doesn't. Okay. Bye. You know, it's like, you know, it's th they're kids. <laughs> so I don't want to say like, you know, 
I really, you know, I mean, one thing, the pandemic, I'm never gonna have to worry about spending more time with my family ever again. Like we're done. We're done. When the pandemic's over, it's like, dude, we're done. We don't need to ever go on vacation. We never need to go camping again. We never need to do anything together again. Cause we did it. You know, it's like we spent like, I'm not going to die. When I die, I won't be one of those guys that you hear about. Like, oh, I regret I didn't spend time with my kids. Like, no, I spent plenty <laughs> I, I was here during the pandemic. Like I don't need to see anybody ever again. Um, so I'm not worried about that. With that said, all jokes aside, I will never take, um, I just want to be able to, you know, have a drink in a bar and talk to someone and not be afraid that I'm going to get them sick or they're going to get me sick. I would, I want to go to Australia and, you know, do comedy. I want to, you know, I was supposed to go to Europe this year. I was supposed to do a States tour. Now, you know, I don't know, you know, if, how those things are going to be, but I won't ever take for, you know, I won't ever take again for granted a lot of the things that I was doing before March 16th ever again. There's going to be a lot of things that I'm not going to do again. You know, I'm not going to get, you know, I'm not going to, there's so many things in this world that I think all of us were so concerned with. And now, you know, after this last six months, uh, you know, you've realized what's important and what's not, who's important to you and who isn't, who do you want to say today that you love? Who do you want to you know, not spend time with? Who are the negative people in your life that you need to get rid of? Who are the positive people that you need to pull in closer? What are the things that you want to do? And what are the things you don't want to do? That's where I'm at. Well, for sure, isn't it? And sorry, I just show check it out. This is this life is short because check it out, Craig. So check it out. The other day, I googled the average life expectancy for a man in America, and it's 76 years, right? So then that's if you make it to 76. So then I multiplied that times 365, and I got if you were born today, you roughly, and you're a man, women live to be about 80, but for, for our sake, for a dude. That's 27,000 days that you have on this planet, right? And change. So then I started going, wow, like think about it. 27,000 days. I thought it would be more, you know? I was like, wow, it's not. So then I multiplied my age times 365 and I subtracted that from the seven, from the 27,000 days. And I have, if I make it to 76 years old, I only have 8,000. 795 days left on this little stone cruising around. Yes. Now, when I think of it that way, some people would say to me, Joe, why would you do the math and stare at a number that's 8,795 days? I mean, that's depressing. And I go, no, it's not depressing because now ever since I did that, Every morning I wake up and I say to myself, you only got 8,000 days left. If you make it to 76, you might only have 5,000. You might only have 3,000 hell, or you might have 10,000 days. Maybe who knows? But the bottom line is I, in my mind every day, wake up and go, I only got 8,000 days left. So how am I going to be, you know, am I going to the other day? It was like, I want to go surfing. Well, I'd have to leave early. Yeah. I get up ever since I figured that I only got that amount of time. I've been getting up. 6 a.m. watching the sunrise because I want to get my money's worth out of every single day so that when I expire and, and I'm going down, I don't want to expire with a look on my face where they say, oh my God, he looks scared. He didn't know what was going on. I want to have a smile on my face and just being like, fuck yeah. You know what? <laughs> Got my money's worth, man. I rode this ride till the wheels fell off. What a party it's been. That's how I want to, that's how I wanted to go out. And what this, what COVID-19 has taught me was moments like taking the time to say, wow, I might only have 8,000 days left. And I, and I, anyone that's watching this or listening right now, do the math right mm -hmm. there. I don't care if you're 20 years old. I don't care if you're 80 years old, sit down. Well, if you're 80 year old, you're on borrowed time. So you're stoked. Okay. <laughs> But like, you know, anyone that's listening to this, do the math on it. Because when you see that number stare back at you, whether it's 9,000 days, whether it's 10,000, it will change your attitude. It'll change your, it'll change your perspective on 
everything going on in your life. You know, the person that's bothering you, the, the person that's, you know, didn't return the, e- I mean, none of that stuff matters. And what you'll start looking at when you start seeing those days is you will wake up every morning and go, who do I want to be today? What do I want to do? Who can I help today? And I'm telling you, because you start seeing those days slowly back off. And that's the biggest lesson that I have going for me right now during this, this strange time that we're all living in. Inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And, and just quickly, did your, either your uh, son or daughter, are they sort of going in the fa- in the father's footsteps uh, in in music or entertainment? My my son is super super talented. My daughter's super super talented. The, you know, unfortunately for you know, like my son, he, he's such a great musician, man. I mean, he definitely, you know, he has a voice, a playing ability that's amazing. And my daughter is super creative in the fashion world. She's that's doing great. everything from styling. Uh, styling, you know, clothing, build, draw, uh, you know, making your own clothing. So, I mean, they're, they're both little entrepreneurs and, uh, it'll be interesting to see because they're definitely, I mean, if anything they got from me is, you know, they, they're doing it their way and they, they make that abundantly clear. My, both my kids are like blazing their own path. And, um, it's, it, if anything, I don't know if that's following in my footsteps, it, it might be because it drives me crazy. Just like I drove my parents crazy. <laughs> And finally, Joe, uh, where can we find you? Uh, like for the Australian listeners, social medias, uh, how do we yeah, get in contact I would, with you? I would say this, you know, uh, for my social media, it's always best to hit me up on Instagram, Joe underscore Sib, S-I-B. You can you know, follow me on Facebook, just Joe Sib. And then if you want to hit me an email, just hit me an email, Joe Sib, Joe, J-O-E-S-I-B, the number two, two at gmail.com. I hope someday Craig, me and you get to meet each other. I would, I would love to come to Australia. Um, and I would love to perform comedy down there. And anyone that's listening to this, um, you know, if I come down there, come to the show, um, we'll have a VB together. And and we didn't even talk about how much I love ACDC. I didn't tell you about going to Bon Scott's grave. Um, yeah, I've I've got a list of things here that I haven't even ticked off. So, we'll do part. We'll do part two. If people care enough, let's do part two. I think we should do part two. Yeah, I, I'm like a huge ACDC fan as well, oh. obviously. And my father saw ACDC in 1974. Uh, he paid $3 to see it. And he said it's still the best concert that he's ever been to. Seeing oh. Bon Scott just tear it up. Oh. He, he, bon he, Scott. He, he drank two uh, bottles of Jack Daniels on stage sober oh yeah totally (laughs) i've heard so many great stories i knew a guy that worked i knew a guy that worked for acdc and he said bond never never went on never like never was you know passed out drunk or like he always you know just delivered the goods live um you know always the best like pro my wife and i my wife always used to say to me she knew i was always had too many drinks when i started to tell her that i was going to get bond scott tattooed on my forearm (laughs) And she'd always, and you know, you know, it was always great because she would always say, "Let's go, let's go get it. Come on, you talk about it. Let's get Von Scott on your forearm." Um, one of the things I used to always say too was, um, I always wanted to start uh, whenever I was in my band or whenever we used to have a joke that was um, things that Bon Scott didn't say, like you know, you know, you know, Bon Scott never said. Hey, you know what? Let's just order in and watch Netflix. Never said that. <laughs> you know, Bon Scott, you know, Bon Scott never said, you know, I'm going to take um, the vegan uh, choice tonight. Like, you know, just things that Bon Scott never did. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I'm going to crash out early. Never. <laughs> Stories there of, uh, you know, the young brothers. He'd be like, he'd be passed out from the night before at a party. You know, he'd have like a Jack Daniels or a cigarette, you know, besides his bed. And then he'd wake up and he'd go, oh, it's just just a machine. Legend. Yeah, just we need to talk more about that, you know, Uh, that the whole uh, Bon Scott grave and Fremantle. I went I went to it. I went to where his mom used to cut hair, the whole thing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, All I, right. took the, I took the journey, but thank you so much, Craig, for having me. I hope I didn't go over time. Um, we'll play some footy. 
Um, yeah, it'll be a good time. <laughs> Did I do that That's, right? They say, yeah, absolutely. A bit of rugby, rugby league. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thanks for your time, Joe. I know you're a busy man. Uh, you know you got all your, you know, look at look at all these things <laughs> that you got going on. So I really appreciate your time. And hey, um, and thank you for taking the time. This, you know, I'll be honest on your end too, man. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, you know, ask me all these questions. And and this was a pleasure on my end. Like I really, I really appreciate you more than you know. And thank you for taking the time to do it. And I hope everyone enjoys it.